Hello, my name's James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. Today, we welcome back friend of the podcast, Dr. Anne Kelly, to discuss a topic that has become top of everyone's agenda in recent days. That is the global vaccine rollout, or as we will come on to discuss, the not-so-global rollout. A key element to any vaccine programme is understanding how the vaccine is distributed effectively and fairly, and it's this that we try to grapple with in today's discussion. These issues go to the very heart of any successful strategy to bring an end to the pandemic. In the words of global health experts, no one is safe until everyone is safe. We also discuss why supply chains and manufacturing infrastructure are not as important as research development in tackling the COVID-19 virus. More broadly, the pandemic and the subsequent vaccine rollout perhaps offers us the opportunity to grapple with the inequalities of health provision at both a national and international level. But I started by asking Anne how she was doing in this third UK lockdown. Dr. Anne Kelly, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, James. It's nice to be uh, back in the hot seat. It's, it's good to be chatting with you again. Yeah. And how, how, how are you doing lockdown free? How's, how's it doing for you? Oh, you know, I think this is, what did they say? You know, one day at a time, you're trying to trudge, trudge through. Um, but, you know, days are getting longer. So, um, and I guess you keep the mantra, it could always be worse. <laughs> it could always be worse. That, that is certainly, that's certainly, you've got to kind of hold on to that. Yeah, getting to five o'clock and it not being dark uh, feels like a huge relief. That that was certainly a a tough period, uh, I think, for everyone. So I guess I, I want to start by kind of understanding the scale of the challenge we face in terms of this vaccine rollout. We've heard a lot in the news about the rollout here in the UK, and we'll come on to discuss perhaps some of the challenges uh, globally. But just in terms of a vaccine rollout and, and distribution. So how unprecedented is the COVID-19 program? Yeah, I mean, there's so many <laughs> things that are unprecedented here. I mean, just the, I mean, going back to the fact that we have moved from sequencing a virus in, you know, January to what is now 15 million in the UK alone of shots in the arms. I mean, this is I mean, and, you know, I don't I, I don't think one can state enough just how um, tremendous that is. I think there's um, what we're trying to do now and what we're discussing, I mean, is really vaccinating a planet, which really is something that has never been done. And if you think about the nature of COVID, I mean, this is a respiratory um, virus. It's contagious. It's mutating quickly. So the kinds of strategies, you know, think with smallpox or I mean, something I'm a bit more familiar with, with Ebola, I mean, you can take a kind of you know, ring vaccination or strategic approach where you can, you know, do contact tracing. But this is a disease that, as we know, has been even the possibility of contact tracing is really hard. So, again, this is hugely unprecedented um, in the scale. You're trying to get the adult population. This isn't children. And that comes with a whole host of interesting questions and problems. So, yeah, I think um, unprecedented is is the word here. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess talking about success and what success looks like, and, and I guess there's many ways and many levels of success um, in, terms of, in terms of this program. I mean, you mentioned there the global effort, and we've been hearing about the UK uh, in recent weeks has taken the lead along with Israel and, and smaller countries, which perhaps aren't as comparable. 
But does vaccinating one country lead to success or, or, or does this need to be seen as a collective effort in that without a proper global approach, actually, we can't achieve the kinds of things in terms of unlocking perhaps long term and the removal of COVID that we want to see? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, you know, I mean, I think most people would find I don't difficult to believe that we will eradicate COVID. I mean, I think that ship has sailed um, if it was ever <laughs> in the dock. Um, but I think what we are, there is this possibility and hope of kind of, I think, driving transmission down so low um, and enough that kind of you can deal with the inevitable flare-ups and you can, I think, also kind of bring back the rate of mutation, right? Because that it is this kind of quick transmission which drives these things. So I think... Having putting ourselves in a place, I mean, like flu, where you can have a sustainable response, where health systems can absorb, um, you know, the inevitable cases that are going to come up and, you know, severe cases. And I think that's the kind of output that we're looking. I mean, another kind of interesting way of thinking about the question is, you know, what is what is the vaccine or vaccines? You know, what is how do we define their effectiveness? And I think there's a lot of questions there still to be answered about, you know, is the vaccine is the point that you're going to have a less severe illness, right? So that the vaccine will prevent people going to hospital. Or is it that you become less contagious? Is it having an impact on transmission? And as we learn more about these vaccines and candidates and we generate kind of more data around them, I mean, again, this is an incredibly short, <laughs> they've only just been rolled out. I think you can have a bit more nuance about how vaccines will fit into national um, control strategies. How are they best deployed? Who do you want to target? So I think effectiveness is a really live question. And yes, ultimately, I mean, we are never, I mean, this is the point, right? We are never going to be rid of this thing. And we're certainly never going to be able to be in a position of returning to some form of normalcy as long as other areas, as COVID is circulating in, you know, dramatic numbers in other parts of the globe. So yes, global for sure. And so we should really see that the 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 rollout, not not a country based thing, but a but a global one. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, again, we, you know, we have these kind of key junctures in our COVID response where because this is globally felt and countries owe it to their populations to ensure their safety, that that's the framework that we have to work with. But when we saw with you know, the fragility of supply chains, of kind of hoarding different kinds of equipment that actually we render ourselves all fragile the minute that we start looking back um, just upon our own populations. And that's a hard, that's a hard politics to advance because we are countries, right? Those, you know, those are the frameworks in which we operate. But, you know, as Tedros said from the beginning, this is a, um, you know, the, sorry, like my buddy Tedros, the um, global health, the world health um, director general of the World Health Organization, you know, that this is a test of solidarity, right? And what kinds of imagination do we have for the global landscape can come out of this? Sort of moving on to that, that, that as you say, that solidarity or, or global landscape. I mean, one of the things when we were discussing this episode is is what we want to focus on and your, your, your background in looking at, at these from a kind of global health perspective. And I guess one of the discussions has been around uh, vaccine development and distribution and the fair access to new vaccines. And, and this, this is a, a long running uh, discussion about, you know, big pharma and access to new drugs um, that kind of predates COVID. But one of the things I found interesting talking to you about, about this is that 
perhaps with the vaccine, it's it's not just about intellectual property, i.e. it's not just about saying, here's this vaccine that we've created and we're just going to hand it out to the world. I mean, that's certainly one element. But something else that we discussed and something else that's been raised in recent weeks and days is this idea that perhaps there is a challenge in terms of actual production. And, and even in Europe, we saw the dispute between the European Union, or at least the, the Commission and the UK over the AstraZeneca vaccine. And when you actually drilled down, and, and there was a fascinating interview with the CEO of, of AstraZeneca, or the head of AstraZeneca, who kind of outlined a production challenge, an engineering challenge over a kind of pharmaceutical or, or drug or kind of health challenge. I mean, just kind of unpacking that a bit. Firstly, is the challenge, is there an issue about sharing new vaccines? Is that something that could improve or, or speed up the distribution of a vaccine globally? I'm particularly thinking in the global south. And I guess, secondly, is this issue of production actually something that is less discussed, perhaps not as political, but something that we really need to grapple with? Yeah, this is great. I mean, I think, you know, IP is always going to be a central concern. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the debate about the degree to which you need IP to stimulate and incentivize people, to incentivize companies to produce, particularly for the kinds of neglected diseases, which generally don't have the markets. I mean, what's interesting about COVID is the market isn't a problem, right? There is lots of market for COVID vaccines. So in a sense, IP isn't the barrier or it isn't the solution to the barrier that we're, we're, we're trying to, to solve. I mean, it is going to be, I mean, questions of intellectual property and profitability. I mean, these are always lively issues. What's specific about vaccines, and I think an interesting comparison is to think about with drugs, is that, you know, to some extent, once you have a recipe for a drug, it can be produced, you know, with, you know, not the same kinds of level of investment. Now, vaccines um, are notoriously kind of complicated <laughs> biotechnologies. And I mean, Traditionally, this would, you know, this involves animal cells that you need to culture that are really hard to keep running, hugely, you know, highly trained operators. It requires a big um, upfront capital investment in, you know, storage facilities. Um, and there's even if you had the perfect, you know, the, the recipe for the vaccine, there's lots of elements to that process, which create a huge barrier to entry for, you know, what would be a kind of generics form of production. Um, I mean, I think, you know, AstraZeneca is a really good example because I think, you know, they've had a couple of big problems with their production. I think, you know, they lost one batch. Um, I know that, you know, that there's issues of contamination. So in addition to all the elements, you need this incredibly rigorous quality management system. Um, you had to adhere to good, you know, manufacturing process. So I mean, it is a it is a complicated endeavor. I think what's what's interesting now is that there are these new technologies, and I'm, I'm sure you will be aware of them, kind of mRNA vaccines or kind of new platforms, which have a lot um, of potential in terms of speeding up the process, maybe making this tech easier to transfer because you don't need these kind of keeping animal cells um, over a long period of time. But, you know, these are new, they haven't been manufactured at scale, um, and still there is quite a bit of investment and, you know, of tech transfer, of enskillment of people who are able to run. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, if you think about barriers to equitable distribution, 
you know, one issue is the market, but the other is, you know, what facilities, what tools do you have in place in order to be able to actually produce the thing. So in that in, in that sense, I think it's a really interesting, lively moment to think about, you know, what concerns about IP do or do not address when we want to be thinking more robustly about um, equity in the context of global health. Yeah, and it was it was certainly fascinating. As I stress that it, this isn't just about the global south. It, I mean, the, in, I think in that interview, he, he the uh, head of AstraZeneca mentioned that they'd they'd had some of the same challenges in the UK three months earlier, and so in a sense, these were quite predictable. And how whenever you start the process of production, you are going to come across challenges in any kind of new manufacturing process, be that um, a vehicle or 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 in terms of a vaccine, and you need to overcome those. You know, with with your global health hat on and thinking about previous challenges beyond the development of drugs, how how big on the agenda was actually thinking about developing actual production lines or processes outside of, I guess, the developed nations in terms of delivering things like vaccines or drugs? Is it something that's been on the agenda, or or, or do you think that actually COVID is the moment when it will actually hopefully be be raised more vocally? I mean, yes, I think more and more it's been on the agenda. I mean, there's an interesting precedent, right? I mean, the WHO had, and largely, I mean, many people think it's kind of the big success of the WHO, it's pre-qualification program, where it would do some of the work with low middle-income country manufacturers to ensure quality assurance and kind of acting as almost a quasi-regulator to ensure that these products could get to market. So there's a relationship and role for the WHO and kind of promoting production. I think more recently, you know, in 2015 at the World Health Assembly, there was this commitment to, you know, thinking about encouraging vaccine manufacturing in um, Africa and having a more coordinated regional response about exactly ensuring that production capacity. I mean, there is, I mean, if we think about kind of low, uh, kind of middle income countries like Brazil, Argentina, um, Mexico, and of course, India, I mean, there is capacity there. But the kinds of investments that we're talking about for COVID, I mean, you, it's, un, it's uneven and you would want a kind of much more distributed network of um, max- manufacturing capacity. So I think it is on the agenda. I think Another push was Ebola because we could see, you know, a vaccine, you know, the the need for a kind of securitized response and having vaccine um, available. I remember I went to early on in the kind of heat of the Ebola outbreak, the then um, vice president of vaccines, Rip Balu at GSK, um, did a presentation where he just said, you know, we are desperate for, you know, mid-level manufacturing capacity. You know, this is going to be our answer. You know, and this was 2015. And he just, you know, was making the case from a kind of, you know, private investment side about, you know, what what is our limitations? And it's that we just don't have facilities in a broad enough scope for doing the kind of, you know, production that we need to, to respond to these outbreaks. Yeah. Cause I mean, I guess, so COVAX is the thing that gets raised often in the UK and, and in the press recently, which is the global program to support uh, vaccination in the developing nations. And the UK often touts its, its contribution to COVAX. What, what I thought was interesting was some of the, the challenges though, that have come up recently, perhaps from from nations saying that that they may be getting vaccine at some point, but but perhaps the distribution networks. Um, and you mentioned there not just production, but actually 
distributing it in the population. If we think of Ebola as a kind of, I guess, a crisis that can be engaged with rapidly or, or from a kind of go in there, head straight there, but um, with, with the support that's needed. But in terms of a vaccine program, which, as we've seen in the UK, means putting a whole infrastructure in terms of distribution, in terms of contacting people, making sure they get their second jab, how prepared, it's a pretty big question, I realise there's lots of countries in there and countries will differ, but kind of how prepared are the countries, many in the global south, for such a kind of large scale programme and, and how much support will they need? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I, I mean, just briefly back to Bull again, I mean, I was so, it, it was so heartening, actually, to see the response there. Because I mean, again, there's been a lot in the, the news about the problems of cold chain, right? And that this is a kind of key issue that would really bedevil the kind of response in areas where infrastructures are quite weak. But, you know, you had guys on their motorbikes or in, you know, <laughs> you know, tiny canoes with freezer packs. So, I mean, just to get around to your question, I think there is incredible ingenuity and capacity there. I think these countries are often underestimated in terms of their ability to move um, (laughs) that kind of logistics and those networks. And I think, you know, I mean, yes, the lack, the kind of infrastructure problems, I mean, all of that is a key concern. I think more, you know, problematic or what kind of, um, you know, is, you know, we keep thinking about here is a product that's manufactured. How do we get it out there? The kind of potential of manufacturing in country or in a more, as you say, kind of distributed way. I mean, you can also really make sure that you are keeping a pace with the virus, right? So you have this constantly, and we've seen, you know, in in very, you know, you, you not want and there's problem of calling these by their country name, whatever is the Kent virus or the UK virus or the South African one, but they are, you know, it is a mutating, um, lively thing. And, you know, the effectiveness of different kinds of vaccines is also going to depend a lot on kind of the populations in which they are served. So, if you have a kind of localized response that, you know, the magic bullet isn't going to be the planet, is going to fit the planet? Then I think, you know, in addition to having things closer to the people on the ground, you might have the capacity to have more, like better vaccines, right? Because they are going to address the particular variants and particular population contexts where they're being distributed. So I think, you know, both end challenges. But again, this is why it makes the case for a much more, I, there was a, a an interesting interview with someone from the Serum Institute who said, you know, the issue here is not um, in, in India of just scaling up, but scaling out. How do we scale out um, this kind of response? And I guess thinking about that, I mean, in terms of in terms of steps that could be taken in, yes, in the short term, but also learning from it in the long term, what does that look like from a practical perspective? I mean, from from an outsider's perspective, I guess, does that mean that you kind of you need to build kind of or invest in infrastructure globally so that no country isn't kind of untouched by a kind of production chain so that, yes, for COVID, but also for what we know may be increasing risk of pandemics and future crises, that those facilities and those structures can be kind of put into place, both to respond to, but also to distribute possible healthcare demands? Yeah, I think, you know, definitely there's a kind of the topography of global health Mm. that needs to be rethought. And I think there's a lot of exciting, you know, conversations going on that, you know, global health shouldn't be about transferring of technology from the north to the south. I think there's some really interesting potential, and I know the WHO is 
is also kind of pushing this is looking at the specific materials and way production has happened, like opening new questions about 3D printing or can we reduce the capacity um, of you know of some of, of some of the machine you know, of the machines of the bioreactors and and you know I think asking and this is really a real exciting moment where you can connect these global health questions with also you know climate change questions could there be sustainable materials that are used can we use locally available you know ready-made sets of technologies to make a lighter footprint for the research process but also make it kind of more agile being able to kind of pop up and I know there's been a really interesting sets of debates around kind of frugal science, around DIY, um, kind of humanitarian technologies. And I think, again, this is the amazing thing about COVID is you can bring some of that together and say, well, you know, actually, some of these innovation questions are not ones for us to solve, right? But that there are innovators in country that just need to be promoted and enabled to really be able to produce the kinds of techniques which will be fit for purpose, right? And for fit for place. Yeah, it's striking. You mentioned climate change. It, it does feel as if if you could mobilize a kind of upgrade in processes and, and as I say, physical infrastructure and, and mobilize the innovation that so many countries have demonstrated, you could see a path towards learning lessons for, for what will need to happen around climate change. And yes, the vaccine rollout perhaps is in some ways one dimensional. You have to get to the vaccine, you have to distribute it, but also it's ongoing. And that, that's similar to climate change, perhaps. Exactly. I mean, it's this kind of this is going this is our, you know, the new reality. Right. Um, and, you know, we have to not think of this as like, how are we going to get out of this now now? But what is going to be the legacy that we take forward? And just from my other work in the context of vector control, mosquito control, I'm working in with some incredible innovators and entomologists as they kind of design new sets of both kind of research infrastructures and also kind of tools that would that work specifically for the context and the people that they're working with. And I was always struck because, you know, come up with some amazing um, new sandal, repellent sandal. And the question would always be, yes, but can this be brought to scale? Like, is this a scalable technology? I mean, from funders. And you wonder if that's the right question. Like, yes, we're dealing with the planet, but maybe always thinking in terms of the scalability of interventions, is this going to be standardizable across multiple places? gets us into a place where we we lose sight of the potential of these kind of very situated um, works. I mean, on on the other side of that question, and I think I just, you know, I would be remiss if I wouldn't mention it. I think a key issue here is the regulatory environments, right? And regulatory oversight. And I think one of the issues that has been hampering is the, I mean, the rollout and the kind of problems of, you know, which vaccine is going to be available where, what is the harmonization between different regulatory bodies, you know, whether it's WHO, the FDA, EMA, different kinds of standards. So I think there's a big um, kind of knot to untangle there and thinking about how do these kinds of agencies and oversights, how do they talk to each other? How do we, how products that get certain kinds of predation somewhere can move elsewhere? So I think it's interesting to think about where, you know, the the global works and where the kind of much more situated approach is going to be appropriate. Yeah, it's it's and and also you may I mean we've we've heard that no one's no one's safe until everyone's safe and to a point that that it's important that we work across borders and through agencies as well not just between countries. Just just building on what you mentioned earlier about some of these countries having India for example 
produce a huge amount of vaccine, will produce a huge amount of vaccine for this COVID-19 pandemic. It's obviously a lot younger country. So we know there's been a huge amount of cases in India, often undetected or, or not measured in the, the statistics. And that points to a kind of a lack of healthcare provision for, for, for many in India. How much should we see things like pandemics and overcoming them, both for countries in Europe and America, in, in the Americas or wherever it might be? How important is it that we start to think about actually making sure that healthcare is not something that stops at borders, that actually that we continue to support countries in developing universal healthcare? I realize I'm talking about America now, who is not fully honest, universal healthcare, uh, not has fully achieved universal healthcare as yet. But in terms of making sure that actually knowing that things like COVAX, yes, they're great, and distributing vaccines, yes, they're great. But actually, until we make sure that everyone in the world has access to healthcare, we're going to continue to face these challenges in terms of distributing things that are going to protect everyone. Yeah, that's such an important point to remember. I mean, I think COVID, I mean, it is a deadly, horrible virus, right? It impacts us in many, many different ways. I mean, that's why it's, it's such a whack-a-mole, slippery object because it, it has so difficult to predict, right, about what kinds of impact it's going to have on what kind of person. But what we can say is that this is a, you know, this is a pandemic that has been first and last about the health system, right? I mean, you wonder if, you know, if you had, if all things being equal, if health systems could absorb the cases, right, um, could, could give quality care to people in severe respiratory distress, as well as attending to the needs of their populations, the kinds of numbers of death, excess death, I mean, would this be quite the same degree of crisis? And I mean, I think a lot of interesting scholars, and I'm thinking to, you know, Claire Herrick's work, I mean, look at, if we look at the health of the population, chronic disease, I mean, this is, and kind of these, quote unquote, pre-existing conditions, whatever that basket means. I mean, this is another place where a pandemic like this is really felt, right? Because you're dealing with populations that might have access, not access to continuing care, live in situations of food scarcity or kind of healthy food desert. So it's this kind of toggling back between, you know, a targeted focus, understanding the challenge that a virus like this presents, but really seeing how it seeds itself into the entire kind of landscape of healthcare and healthcare access. And you're right. I mean, I think if we don't roll it back to that point, then, I mean, not we're going to be facing COVID, multiple COVIDs, you know, COVID also like 55 and then, you know, whatever else the world has waiting for us around the bend. Yeah. And it's, uh, I know there's things being planned in global health and social medicine, but it is fascinating to see health not become a side issue in government, but actually the driver of economic and political choices, you know, and education choices, you know, you could, the list is endless now. But actually, if we don't send to health in terms of policymaking in everything we do, it, we're going to continue to see challenges, as you say, in terms of wider knock-on effects. No, absolutely. I mean, I think centering, I mean, I think this is, you know, cuts across all dimensions of kind of political conversation, economic. I mean, we are, in some ways, it's, it's you feel like this is a case that one would have to make, right, it, initially, that, you know, okay, well, health, I mean, this is the, this is the motto of our department, like, you know, it's more than a medical matter. And now, I mean, that seems like, you know, the, the biggest cliche truism one could possibly make. I think, you know, what's going to be interesting, in addition to the way that health has become central, 
is just what kind of new um, ways of thinking about this kind of what a global health endeavor looks like. And, you know, I think there's been a lot um, of positive, if one can say that, reflection on COVID about what the degree to which solidarity is required. But I think it also has shown up some of the, you know, fragilities of our institutions to negotiate that. I mean, something like COVAX, um, you know, depends upon a pooled investments. It is, you know, a multilateral investment. And yet, of course, there is all the reason why there isn't vaccines expected, the numbers available is because of all the bilateral agreements between countries and companies on the side. And I think governance is going to be a big question going forward. Well, we've got the NHS. Perhaps it's time for the Global Health Service. That's that's where we're going next. Yeah, that sounds great. sounds like a, that, that won't be complex at all, and we, we'll we'll just tackle that in a future episode. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> we've got this, James. Yeah, exactly. World, we got this. It just leaves me to say, Dr. Ann Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, James. Thank you. You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.